You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. Hello, how are you this morning? Richard Watts with you here, taking you through till midday today with another edition of Smart Arts. As always, big thanks to the Breakfasters. They'll be back with you tomorrow morning between 6am and 9 I'm taking you through until midday today and, as always, a range of conversations about what's going on in the art world. On the theatre front, for example, we'll be finding out about a double bill of uh, kind of one-person plays being presented by Red Stitch, Dead Centre and Sea Wall. On the visual Arts Front. Uh, there's not one but three exhibitions at Off the Curb Gallery in Collingwood. So I've got all three artists, Eddie Botha, Dom Krapsky and Margaret McIntosh, coming in to chat about their work. We're also going to find out uh, about what's going on in the world of comedy. We've got a couple of comedians coming in at different times today. Nazim Hussain will be in at about 11.15 today. Nazim uh, is doing a solo show at the Yarraville Club. Uh, and Damien Callanan is coming in as well to talk about the Lost World War I Diary, which he's touring quite significantly around Victoria and interstate as well. Also shows in Tasmania, I believe, WA and elsewhere. Uh, also on the theatre front, we'll be finding out about uh, the latest production of Hamlet to grace Melbourne stages. Director Damien Ryan coming in to talk about Bell Shakespeare's Hamlet, which had its opening at the Arts Centre last night. And Night Art is coming up, taking over various locations across Melbourne on Thursday the 23rd of July, activating the spaces, as the art world likes to say. So uh, Night Art co-founder Deborah Stahl will be coming to talk about how you can kind of roam around the precincts and look at uh, art in the evening. All that and more, plus... Artistic Director of Arts House and Harrod Wynne-Jones coming in to talk about their 10-year to date and uh, what's coming up in the uh, months and years to come. Uh, And our Shoot the Messenger segment returns uh, with playwright, blogger, podcaster Fleur Kilpatrick coming in to uh, talk about a couple of shows that she has seen. But first off, a little bit of music. You're tuned to Triple R. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. Now, speaking of magnifique or magnificent Red Stitch Actors Theatre, uh, one of the the bastions of quality theatre in Melbourne, their next work is a double bill of two one-person plays, Dead Centre and Seawall, one by a UK playwright, one by an Australian playwright. Joining me in the studio to tell us more, Julian Merrick, who is directing these two works, and playwright Tom Holloway, who has written Dead Centre. Good morning and welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you very much. So, Julian, what is it about uh, one-person plays that intrigues you as a director? Because they must be much more of a challenge (laughs) in their own way than a larger cast. They are. Um, Yeah, I once joked that I was going to take all my one-person shows that I directed and stick them all together and and do an eight-person play, I think. 
um, <laughs> just just for a change. Um, they are a challenge, and in fact, they're um, they're two art forms welded together. That's that's the trick of it, really. Um, one art form is at least four thousand years old, and that's that's the art of the storyteller. And the other is a little bit younger, only two and a half thousand years old, and that's representative drama. So it's really the kind of the melding of those two things, because the performer in it is really often required to do both of those, both be a storyteller and be an actor in the story. And so part of the art is getting the balance of that right. Now, as a company, Red Stitch made their name presenting recent international work, but over uh, the the decade plus that they've been around, they have moved into commissioning. Tom, this isn't the first time uh, that uh, you've had a, a, a new play put mm-hmm. on by Red Stitch. Uh, Red Sky Morning, which very famously debuted in 2008 and then ended up touring nationally and, and to, to great acclaim, and I know you've done another work with them as well. But for you, getting a, uh, the opportunity to write uh, a new work for Red Stitch, but to write a solo mm-hmm. for one performance um, I imagine is also a, an intriguing challenge for you as a playwright. Well, there's there's a lot of uh, joy to be had from working with Red Stitch because a, a lot of uh, where that comes from is the quality that you know is going to come from the the actors that you're going to get to work with because they are all, I mean, they're all really talented actors, but they're also all regularly working actors, so they're they're in form as it were all the time. And that's a real pleasure. I mean, another great thing about the company is that they, when when they want to do something, they really want to do it because they're going to be the ones on stage, and they want it to be as good as they as it possibly can be. So there's a real uh, interrogation to get the the best quality work out. So there's so many kind of really joyous qualities to working with them. This show, um, it particularly was really interesting for me because Simon Stevens was a mentor to me. So when um, Ella Cordwell, the artistic director, approached me about it, I was really excited about the idea. A bit daunted too because he was a mentor, um, but really excited. So the notion then of putting these two solo plays on as a double bill, um, uh, uh, Tom's work, Dead Centre, comes before Seawall. You decided not to flip the order. Yeah, uh, but how do how do the, these works speak to one another? Uh, well, they're they're about two characters in the same story. So there's one story that unites them both, which is about a happily married couple for whom a very unforeseen and difficult event occurs. And so I won't be a spoiler and, and let you know what that is. Um, it's dealt with very deftly in Seawall, and I think the challenge for Tom was how to add to that without. Um, and create a standalone artwork that nevertheless would be a emotional and psychological companion to that extraordinary package. And I think when you work on this scale, you work in miniature. So, you, you know, occasionally you'll go into a shell shop and see those people who write the Lord's Prayer on little tiny kind of thumbnail-sized mm-hmm. shells. Well, it, it's a little like that. It's Everything really matters because you're doing it on such a tiny scale. Yeah, they're, they're, they're absolutely. It, it must be akin to writing poetry, where you're trying to distill the essence of an idea into as few words but perfectly placed as possible. And the other thing for for me with this challenge was because of, of right, because Seawall was this existing work and is an incredible work, I needed to try to <clears throat> find a way of writing something that, that works to enhance that, to work with it, but not to, to take any of the attention away from that piece. And as we developed 
this idea of writing about one of the characters from Seawall who's gone through the same thing as the main character and say, well, that becomes a really interesting challenge because we need to see someone really going through something but leave it to Seawall to explore exactly what that thing was. And that was, as a writer, that was a really great challenge. I'm a bit more like working, um, writing a libretto, so writing words for another artist um, to then really do their thing as opposed to being, you know, the sole playwright and therefore having to get everything down on the page. The musical motif is one that that intrigues me because in many ways it it is like picking up, um, I don't know, a, a, a melody and mm. then enhancing it. it yeah. it's, it's almost a compositional role. I regularly said that I felt like my job was to be the best support act before the headliners because I've got to get the audience really in the mood um, to really kind of experience Seawall as best as possible. Uh, the, the problem with that metaphor, though, is that often when you go and see a band, no one pays any attention to the support I know, act. But, but, but if the support act really can do their job, then they, get, they can get the audience pumping. I mean, normally you're at the bar getting as many drinks into you as you can before it gets too crowded, but, you know. Julian, in terms of yeah. Simon Stevens as a playwright, Melbourne audiences have just had the chance to see yeah. his work Birdland, yeah. uh, which was a, a fascinating look at sex, drugs, rock and roll and the price of fame, uh, and beautifully directed and performed. Yeah. What is it about him as, as a writer that intrigues you? Um, well, I used the phrase the extraordinariness of ordinary life the other day, and I, and I think that that's something that both applies to Simon and to Tom. So I think of them as very similar writers in a way. If you go to their plays, then the language that you hear is not special language. It's, it's ordinary language. Um, and the people are not exotic. They're not from Mars or from kind of strange parts of the world. They're often quite recognisable. And yet very quickly the plays rapidly enter a very different and unique theatrical terrain, um, a, a terrain that you realise is under ordinary life all the time, really. So it's, uh, I think it's that degree of dramatic penetration and interest that marks their territory as writers, and it's, it's a very compelling one. What do you mean by that terrain that underlies ordinary life? Well, you know, most of the things that happen in our lives, I suppose, and in the lives of others, we don't notice very much. Mm. You know, we just just get through it. Um, it's only when we get hit by a bus or we get put in the ground that we really stop to think. Um, and playwrights who then kind of look at things in detail and penetrate down into the things that are around us, um, rather than sort of, you know, fairy stories or whatever else it is that you can do, which for which I have a lot of time too. But it's always the kind of the magic of the life around us that um, that you, I want to see anew, and I can do that through through the plays of Simon and Tom. For instance, just before we came in here with you, we went um, over the road and got a coffee. And as we were waiting for it, I was kind of looking around the little cafe and there was a couple sitting down talking to each other and um, another couple closest to us and us waiting for our coffee. And there was one person on their own in the window of the cafe kind of crammed right up in the corner. And it's it's a morning. They might just be having their coffee on the way to the work. But I'd noticed them and I thought, why? Who, who is this person that's here on their own and what are they... Um, what are they thinking about? What are they going through in this little moment? And it could be nothing. It could be, gee, I wish I was still in bed. Or it could be something really great and really big. And, when you, and what, by great, I mean big. Um, and when you live in a city, you are surrounded by um, 
what every single other person is going through. Um, they're doing their best to keep it at bay, but it is still surrounding you and therefore you're still being impacted by it. And I find that really, find those things that connect us and whether we know it or not, really fascinating. It's an amazing dramatic challenge, isn't it? Yeah. To write about that. Yeah. That, that hidden but ordinary life. Oh, I th- yeah. And it's, a, it's like an endless pool to draw from too because everywhere you go, you're seeing new examples of it. Another uh, extraordinary challenge, though, is for uh, actors performing in a solo mm. work. Uh, if if they dry and, or, and forget a line, there's no other actor to step in and, oh. and, mm. and nudge them. There's nobody else to, to uh, share that burden with them. So talk to us, uh, Julian, just briefly about the, the actors that you've cast in these two solo works and how you're working with them. Um, well, like Tom said, um, Red, Red Stitch um, Actors Theatre, is uh, it's, it's an A-plus company. Um, it's got some extraordinary actors in it um, and um, uh, you know it's a great pleasure to work and shape with them I, I suppose you, you say about drying and forgetting your lines I don't think it's so much that it's it's more that you have total responsibility mm. for the journey from A to B you you can't just pass it off um, and you also you are your own validator your own your own court of appeal I mean you you don't can't turn to somebody else when you when you come off and go did I do okay mm. it's it's just you so it's getting used to that that kind of headspace really which I think comedians know well and solo mm. singers know well cabaret singers know well um, uh, but but for an actor is less usual so you're not just having to do your skills, you're having to get used to the psychological headspace that comes with it. The two plays that we're discussing, Dead Centre and Seawall, are on uh, pre- uh, previewing tonight, opening tomorrow night, and then running through until the 15th of August at Red Stitch Actors Theatre, which is at the rear of two Chapel Streets in Kilda East, just over the road from the recently reopened Astor Theatre. Uh, if you would like to book, you can call the box office on 95338083 or email boxoffice at redstitch.net. And of course, you can go to redstitch.net for more information about Dead Centre and Sea Wall. Julian Merrick and Tom Holloway, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R and uh, Chookers for the production. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. You're tuned to Triple R. 9.33 is the time. Smart Arts is the name of the programme. If you've never been to Off the Curb Gallery before, well, now's an excellent opportunity to go because there's not one but three new exhibitions all opening tomorrow night between uh, 6 and 9pm. So you get to look at art, talk to artists, have a drink uh, and do a little bit of socialising. So uh, the three shows are Remortalisation by Eddie Botha, Time's Arrow by Dom Krapsky and Upstairs Dear John by Margaret McIntosh. All three artists join me in the studio now. Good morning to you all. Good morning. Good Good morning. morning. So, uh, tell us, uh, I guess, to begin with, uh, what does Off the Curb Gallery represent to you? you, When you think of the gallery, do you think of a a particular style of work? Uh, Does your work fit into that style or not? Margaret, let's start with you. Well, I think that the thing that we... The three of us share in common is um, our work is very figurative and um, I think it involves movement. Mm. Um, I think Off the Curb often has a lot of portraiture style, um, figurative type works. 
Yeah. Eddie? Yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree with that. It's usually quite illustrative and um, it's pretty edgy. It's it's more, there's, there's a fair bit more sort of on the edge of getting to street art and that sort of b- cut between gallery and street art. Um, Sheeny is quite um, sort of, oh, she's very aware of what's happening in the industry and so you, you, you get a lot of fresh type of art there. Yeah. Tom? Yeah, I mean, a lot of our work is square and comes in frames and goes on the wall, so <laughs> we've got that covered. <laughs> uh, sounds rather traditional to me. <laughs> um, Eddie, I noticed that uh, on your website you talk about uh, producing work with the intention to make people smile but also ponder about serious issues in life. Yeah, um, I think there's enough negativity going on in the world and um, I would like to um, make people smile and I, there's nothing that gives me more pleasure when someone looks at my artworks and start pointing at it and sort of start giggling and stuff. So that's that's what I would like to happen. But there's also an underlying seriousness about some issues that we all know there's some serious stuff going on in the world. And um, I like to use a bit of psychology to bring that through and make people think about it. Sometimes it's subconscious. Uh, my mom's a psychiatrist, so I, I sort of play a bit with, you know, making people not really real, <laughs> making them know that I'm sort of getting something into their brain at times but um i think that's what art should do anyway so but i'm i may be a little bit more aware of that than than some other people yeah and margaret your work in the exhibition dear john now if i think of dear john as a letter it's not necessarily going to the content is not necessarily going to be very positive it's often like the dear john letter is the breakup letter for example (laughs) um and your work i mean i know themes of of home and domesticity are some of the things that you're exploring but tell us a little bit more about the work in the exhibition yeah i guess um, domesticity was sort of some of my previous work but this show this the title dear john comes from um hank williams um song title so all all of the works in the show are titled after hank williams songs so i guess i was interested in that um that kind of concept of loneliness i think hank williams really pulls off that kind of humorous sad you know um song titles like um, I'll be a bachelor till I die, or my son calls another man daddy. I think they're just too too good to kind of not use. And so I guess that's a little bit of the humour side of it, but it's also like a lenticular kind of a thing in terms of it is it is about loneliness and it is about something sad, but it also is kind of humorous as well at the same time. And Tom, there seems to be looking at some of your work online. There is a sadness to it uh, because there is a. Uh, a sense of, in some of your portraits, a, a blurring, a passage of time, perhaps a sense of loss. But what are you kind of looking at in your work in this particular exhibition? I mean, that title of the show, Time's Arrow, and the things that you would have gotten from looking at the work in that context is kind of a fake-out. Like, the, the actual... Um, I guess the point of that work is is described in another title that's up next to the up next to the pictures of you know well I don't I don't want to give it away but I like that there's a sense of a passage of time and a sense of disappearing where you have these fleeting encounters with people that come into a, a kind of a cool dark studio where you try and be present with one another but it's also just an excuse for some sort of vulnerability or intimacy I mean all of these pictures have uh, photos of people in a empty field that have had paint applied to their faces and there's kind of an, a closeness and an intimacy to that that's not necessarily sad but is um, a very particular kind of present that I like to work with. In terms of intimacy for the three of you, um, the very act of 
putting on an exhibition, putting your work out into a, a public field for criticism and commentary is in some ways a very intimate act. It's, it's making yourselves vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the how you feel about mounting an exhibition. Is it and is it uh, is having other artists to share that experience with a positive or a negative? Well, I think it was funny, Eddie and I were just talking outside about the idea of um, exhibiting work and he'd said that um, it's a little bit like taking your clothes off and pretending that um, you're really comfortable with it and you're sort of pretending it's not really happening. So I think that that's sort of what it does feel like. It is a very vulnerable kind of experience to show your work and I think we're all feeling the same about, you know, the idea of an upcoming exhibition and, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I used to do quite a lot of life modelling when I was younger, and there's there's a lot of. I used to get really nervous beforehand, but once once you're in the process of taking your kit off, you're kind of like, well, this is really happening. I can't really feel too bad about it now. So now that the work's hung in the gallery, I'm I'm reasonably relaxed about this. Um, there was there was much more panic coming beforehand before when I bring the work into the actual into the space I'm like oh no what if it's not very good but now that I've seen it I think yeah it's it's pretty decent I can I can deal with this yeah it definitely always helps to be you know to if there's more people around you that's having the same sort of issue as what you're having um but I think the show hung together really well there's it's quite diverse all 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 of our work is fairly diverse but um but the thing that holds it together, like Margaret was saying, is the fact that it's about people. It's 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 that in interaction about people, and and it's it's a pretty interesting show, if I must say so. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of the the act of exhibiting work for for yourselves as as artists, um, does it feel like that's something you have to do, or something that you want to do? Because I know some artists who are just happy to make work and never show it to anyone, um, but then other artists who are wanting to push. The themselves and get their work out there. How, tell us about your relationship, I guess, with your work and with the public. Yeah, I think the wanting to and feeling like you have to, I think they kind of go a little bit hand in hand. I think um, I definitely feel like I want to run away and hide at the idea of showing my work, but also I want to do it at the same time. So there's, a, there's quite a push and pull between that mm. feeling. Ultimately, I like artists should make their work for themselves but also for other people well that's that's my opinion anyway like you 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 want to express something and to not share that with others would be a bit unfair but i could understand that some artists might want to keep it private and just for themselves but to me that would be a bit of a loss there's you could you could influence people around you in a in a in a good way and sort of express yourself and just show people something about what's going on inside you yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think especially in terms of your work, where you were saying that you like your, there's a particular kind of reaction that you want, and your work is quite playful and almost mm, uh, aggressively jovial. Like it's it's mm. it's really colourful, and you've kind of covered the entire interior of the space, like yeah. the walls, the windows, all of that sort of thing. That that doesn't really work as a something that you'd only be seeing yourself you really need to have people in the space and their reactions to it to kind of charge the work so it's i think that as much as exhibiting can be a terrifying experience it also is the second half of actually making something how terrifying is it? I mean, I'm not a visual artist, so if I come to somebody's exhibition, I'm trying to be supportive, say nice things, have a, share a glass of wine with them and look at the work. Um, is, it, is an opening night for an exhibition um, a terrifying experience or a positive one? 
Well, I think kind of like what Dom was saying, once the work is on the wall, you sort of know that the work itself, the physical work and all that kind of sweat and blood goes into it. Um, so I think there is a sense of calm, but you, you're also quite apprehensive. I often find that I'm kind of looking at people's faces to find their expression, to try and work out what they actually think. To interpret their, their responses. Yeah, yeah, and I'm always frightened of hearing people talk. I just kind of want to mm. just... Yeah, not, not. Yeah, I think that with the with the work that I make, it involves taking hundreds of photos of people, and I just go through them, pick out the one or two where they're actually present in the room, and you can see some sort of connection. And it's kind of the same thing. If everyone's saying the same thing to you at an opening, yeah, this is great, and you're just trying to look at them to see what they're actually what, what they're, they're really saying. thinking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How often have people come up and said, "It's not your best work," but. <laughs> Uh, because uh, it's, uh, I'm a theatre critic, so if, if a playwright on an opening night says to me after, what did you think of the show, I'm going to be honest, because they're going to read my opinion anyway. Uh, are people sometimes brutally honest? Some, yeah, sometimes. And, Bastards. And I, 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 I do appreciate it. It's, it. It hurts, but you've got to appreciate it, um, because that's what you need, and that's partially why you should have a show, is to get that feedback and, and find out where you're at and how people respond to it, and it, it is important. But it is hair-raising. It's like... I start sleeping bad like at least three or four nights. I had this show prepared like a month ago and I started sleeping bad about three or four nights ago. I woke up at half past four this morning, half past, yeah, half past four this morning and I was just, I, I, I get really tensed up. And on the opening night as well, but not as bad. Actually, that's sort of when, you know, it's done, like there's nothing you can do about it, but you, 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 you're it's still the a bit... up then, that's you, know, you, you, you just feel vulnerable. That's, that's probably the best word. You just feel vulnerable. It's actually funny that you talk about that lack of sleep because I legitimately had a dream last night where I'd gone into the gallery and replaced all of my pictures with really unflattering <laughs> nude images of myself. <laughs> uh, you've got a love anxiety dream. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I've got three artists in the studio, Eddie Botha, uh, Dom Krapsky and Margaret McIntosh. Their works are opening tomorrow night, three separate exhibitions at Off the Curb Gallery, 66B Johnson Street, Collingwood. You can find out more information at offthecurb.com.au you, given what they've all just been saying about stress and anxiety and the, the 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 necessity of nonetheless exhibiting because you want people to see and interpret and talk about the work, um, then I reckon everybody listening should uh, go and check out the exhibition either for the opening tomorrow night, which is between 6pm and 9pm, or go and check out the exhibition at some stage between t- uh, tomorrow and the 31st of July when it closes. Guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. Thank It's 10 minutes to 10am. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. We have a cavalcade of guests this morning. I think there's something like 10 interviews over three hours, which is possibly slightly too many. Uh, But I will nonetheless remember to relax and breathe uh, and hopefully not sound too manic by the end of the show. My next guests have joined me in the studio. Lachlan Mackenzie Spencer and Andrew Strano join us to talk about the songs of Mackenzie Spencer and Strano for one night only at Chapel Off Chapel. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, Andrew, let's start with you. What is sure. it about music theatre and cabaret and that go together so well? There seems to be something that so many musical theatre performers I know now are doing cabaret-style shows, these kind of more intimate shows, rather than the, the, the big 
uh, music theatre style productions. Oh, well, there's just not enough work, is there? They have to make it for themselves. Um, <laughs> no, it's. I think. I think that there's a huge attraction to performing in a smaller environment. You get a lot more connection with your audience. Uh, I think that's one of the exciting things for me, anyway, is having that fourth wall down um, and having a conversation with people. It's. A, it is. It's more intimate um, and more engaging. I think. And as a, I guess. The, the notion of then assembling uh, a selection of music for a, a one-night show like this. Mm-hmm. Are these all brand-new original songs that you've written, that, are, that, that have been written for the, for the night? Uh, not for this occasion. There are a couple of new ones we're t- testing out, but actually um, we are, are, are reassigning a lot of the material we've had uh, in our previous uh, shows as well, so it's a bit of a, a cross-section of our... Over, I suppose you okay. might say. It, it is all original work. Like, it's all songs that we've written, but um, some of them have been seen before. Yeah, but uh, this is an opportunity to assign them to a new performer, for example, absolutely. to experiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. It's like seeing Mike McLeish sing some of this stuff yesterday was like, what? Oh, <laughs> yes, OK, that's what it can be like. Who are some of the other artists that you've invited to, to be part of this, this evening of musical delights? Uh, well, we've got a, a, a quite a good cross-section, actually, of people, um, so established performers like Mike and um, Andrew Broadbent, yeah, uh, Femme Belling. Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, but also some of the younger crowd of music theatre performers. We've got Rob Tripolino, Steph Jones, who's just been cast in Sound of Music. Yeah, uh, and Robbie's uh, in at the Art Centre at the moment in um, in West Side Story. Um, who's that? And lady? then it's Beckmore. Oh, Beckmore, yeah. yeah. Um, who has been in like Motherhood and uh, did a little show with me last year called Calvin Berger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we've got a really good bunch of people who are super talented and super enthusiastic. Is it fun giving over your own music and your own songs to, to other people to perform or is there still part of you that just goes no they're ours I want to keep them to myself and do them <laughs> no no I wondered if that would be the case you know I really did like when I was entering into this sort of um, side of things uh, because we started with me performing a lot of the stuff I wondered if that would be how I felt and it absolutely isn't it, I'm like a kid in a super talented candy store you know <laughs> like just watching these people take them and make choices with them and make them their own is uh, it showed me that that what I really want is to be a writer, I think, rather yeah. than just a performer. Well, and I think that is the beauty of being a writer, is that you hand it over to someone else and they bring their whole background and history and experience and expertise to the same material in ways that you could never have dreamed of. Yeah, it's like lyric isn't comp- complete without music and, and song is not complete without performer and performance is not complete without audience. And so, yeah, Monday night, right? <laughs> now, um, one of the things that caught my eye about uh, this show, uh, which, as we've said, is called The Songs of Mackenzie Spencer and Strano, um, it's been described as a heartfelt and meaningful look at life, relationships, Hogwarts, incest and plant genitalia. It's important. That's a good mix of, of <laughs> topics. I think so. I think that, you know, people want uh, a little bit of humour as well, right? Like, I, I, certainly me, I can't... I can't I can't treat anything completely straight up and down. I think that I think that there's you need to be not not clever is the wrong word. You don't need to be cleverer, but you do need to maybe sometimes trick people a little bit with um, with a bit of sentimentality um, and and bring that to something that is a little drier. It's that I guess it's that sort of Hemingway thing, right? Of like the I, the iceberg is majestic because you can't see nine tenths of it. 
Um, <laughs> I'm on a Hemingway bent at the moment. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, the that notion though of I don't know adding a a dose of humour to a topic, for example, can sometimes backfire when the humour undercuts the drama rather than emphasises it. Tell us about that kind of trying to find that balance in in the approach to a song to writing a song or writing a lyric. Yeah, it's there have been tricky moments in in finding the way to kind of lead into a song that mm-hmm. sets it up in a way that people know what what they're in for. Yeah, um, of course. And sometimes, like the, we've got two good examples of, of of songs that we've sort of got that maybe you know that we might get played today. But the uh, one of them is sort of you know it's a classic like set up and punch like a oh we'll set up this idea and then this twist reveals this thing to you. Um, and then the other one is is a similar thing, but the twist is much later in the song because it's a more serious thing, and so it leaves you um, waiting until the end. And and you find that because like surprise and laughter are really similar in an audience i think um they're similar responses you you can sometimes trigger one when you when you're too heavy-handed with the other if you're too heavy-handed with the surprise it can give a laughter response so one of the songs that we brought in today uh, is actually was actually quite delicate and took a little bit of um took a little bit of getting Oh, like fine tuning before it was ready, but uh, yeah, well, I think we've I think we've managed. Cool. Well, we'll hear a song uh, in just a moment, uh, and which will be a taste of the evening that you're presenting uh, on Monday, the twentieth of July, uh, in the loft at Chapel of Chapel, uh, and you can book at chapeloffchapel.com.au, or you can call eight two nine zero seven thousand. But to step back for a moment, how long have you guys been collaborating together? How long have you known mm-hmm. each other? And how did this all, how did this kind of, this beautiful friendship begin? Uh, it goes back to VCA days, does, I think. yep. Which is quite a long time ago. Yeah, 2008. Yeah, wow. But um, we haven't been writing quite that long. No, more like 2012, I think, is we, we wrote our first song in, in 2012. I came to... Uh, Lachlan with a, a bunch of little ideas and and um, and the incest one is the one that he jumped on, which is which is <laughs> you know says a lot about our, our uh, sensibilities I guess. Um, and then we wrote that we wrote another one or two, uh, and then it was a long time before we sort of committed ourselves to sitting down and properly putting something together, which yeah, was nailed it. the whole show, which was last year, kind of about this mm-hmm. time of year, in fact, mm-hmm. almost a year ago. Um, and then yeah, that sort of led to other things that we've kind of got in the pipeline, but. Nothing, nothing, you know, uh, nothing more concrete than that yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we don't want to give too much away. We no. kind of, especially if things haven't been confirmed. Or, well, that's right. Yeah. Um, something that is exciting, if you, uh, is that Lachlan is. Uh, we're going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. We're taking Nailed It over there, which is really exciting. It's going to be super fun. Um, but immediately after, Lachlan's been accepted into a, a course at Pennsylvania State University in the US. Um, they take two people once every two years uh, from the whole world. Uh, and his third year will involve like working on Broadway and all of that sort of stuff. So I, uh, you know, it's like we'll be doing a lot of writing over Skype, I think. But <laughs> yeah, it's a, yeah, that's a hell of a commute, actually. That one. So um, it's a big risk taking a show to the Edinburgh Fringe. I know so many performers who come back and say, "Look, I had a great time. I learned so much." Oh, and look, I'm ten thousand dollars in debt, <laughs> oh, yeah. or what have you. What are your expectations of Edinburgh? Well, I think it really is about networking and and getting people in to see the show who couldn't possibly get 
to see it here in, in Australia. And I think that's kind of our major focus. Obviously, we'd love to have some audiences to perform to, but... Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone in Edinburgh is listening, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, right. Exactly. Well, people could well be. We uh, triple R streams around the planet. Quick, true. Pl- plug your season yeah, in Edinburgh. Please. Yeah, that's right. Oh, guys, go to Assembly. We're at Roxy Downstairs. Uh, we're at 8.15 for the first half of the festival because then Lachlan has to move to the US. <laughs> So, uh, you know, never know. But um, we are uh, raising some money on Possible. Ah, uh, true. Um, yeah, which has... Along the way. Yeah, just to cover sort of the show costs. And when we decided to do it, we said, wouldn't this be a great holiday and a great way to send you off to the US? And also, wouldn't it be great to maybe get some people along to the show? So we're, we're treating it as a holiday where we also get to do a show. Um, and I think that's a good mindset to have because every performer that I talk to, like you say, sort of says, oh, my God, it's so hard. It's going to be a struggle. It's the worst. You, you know, do you have someone who's going to look after you? maybe cook food for you or like wash your clothes or you'll love it <laughs> and you go like what this is a dichotomy all right yeah uh, so that's edinburgh that's off in the future but coming up uh, on monday night at chapel off chapel at 8 p.m for one night only you can catch uh, green room award-winning songwriters lachlan mckenzie spencer and andrew strano presenting their songs as interpreted by a range of friends and colleagues from the uh, the musical theater world including as we've heard uh, mike mcleish fem belling and many more turns like it will be a rather entertaining evening yeah it's yeah. It's certainly shaping up that way. Definitely. Uh, so we're going to hear a track now. So, yeah. so uh, we've, we've chatted a, a bit about you and your work. So uh, um, I believe there's a little bit of an intro uh, there, on the recording. There is, yeah. We recorded this live at the Butterfly Club just last Saturday night. Uh, so we, we recorded Nailed It, which is the show we're taking to Edinburgh, all live. Um, and, uh, yeah, and this is the maybe the first time you will have heard the recording, Lachlan, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's turned out well. I'm pretty happy anyway. <laughs> well, let's give it a whirl. Guys, thank you for coming in. No, thank, thank you for you. having us. When we were writing the show, though, I had to think about lots of different kinds of love that, I, that I've been able to, you know, lucky enough to experience in my life. Uh, and one kept coming back to me, which is where you've known that person for what seems like forever and, until finally... Um, you realise that your feelings have become more than just friendship. Somehow it dawned on us gradually that a friend had become something more. Our love grew for years, built on laughter and tears, until finally we opened the door. Somehow it came to us naturally, like a seed that is starting to Because of the things that we share So much in common So much in common It's a feeling I cannot deny Finally I kissed her How could I have missed her? We've got so much in common My twin sister and I Similarities from our hair to our family home. This might seem ludicrous. We shared a uterus and all but my Y chromosome. Her affections are far more than sisterly. She knows how to set me aflame. We fit like our hand in a glove. Every time we make love. So much in common, so much in 
We always see eye to eye. Our twin tuition makes nuclear fission in every position. My twin sister and I will spend our whole lives together, share more than family ties. What's more, I promise to give her all I've got. Like looking into a mirror, I see myself in her eyes. You see, she's just like me. Madness just has to be stopped. We've got too much in common. Genetically common. <laughs> I guess we'll have to adopt. Because when you find someone in love with you, you stick by them day after day. We're made for each other, this sister and brother, so why would I throw that away? We've got so much in common, so much in common, society's rules can't apply. I know that I ought to hold on, now I've caught her. Blood's thicker than water. My twin sister and I. You're tuned to Triple R. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. Now, it is the... Uh, there's, there's been a lot of World War One and Gallipoli uh, nostalgia and... Heaps. Heaps and heaps and heaps. Um, uh, and a show that is... Perhaps tapping into that, but in a rather much more sardonic way, but nonetheless a poignant way at times as well. Damien Callanan's The Lost World War One Diary, which is about to do a national tour. It's been getting five-star reviews in Adelaide and Perth and elsewhere. Damien, hello. Hello, Richard. Nice to see you. You too, mate. Now, 
For people who are more familiar with you from appearances on TV, uh, where you've been sketch shows and the like, um, your your comedy is often very narrative driven, mm. uh, very character based. In which kind of you play multiple multiple characters. Um, I'm thinking in like of the merger, which I know you recently yeah. toured. Uh, you play about fifteen or twenty characters in that. Uh, no, that, that my record is thirteen in a okay. show. So I'm um, exaggerating slightly. That, that's but. fine. The the merger I think is about nine. Okay. Um, two of whom are sock puppets, so you know that doesn't diminish their role in the show that as Greek chorus. But uh, um, this show is eight, I think. So um, yeah, that is a, a want of mine. But it was almost impossible to tell a, a narrative about World War One without you know introducing other other people into it. The show itself, actually, I wax and wane a little bit my work, but this one begins as me. Um, to personalise the story, I kind of go through my childish, childhood obsession with with war and being a compromised pacifist, and you know, having you know, never thrown a punch, never sacked a village, apart from Yarrawonga. Um, that was a good Easter. Um, but yeah, so I, I kind of explain all of that, and then kind of introduce a, a, a mystery in the in the show, which is a photograph that used to appear in various family um, mantelpieces of these two diggers, who we couldn't name. The, no, it, it almost felt like so my family looked like they were involved in mobile when they just got a generic photograph and framed it and put it on the mantelpiece, but no one knew who they were. So that was the mystery. And then I uh, take the audience on the journey of when I find it, a diary in an op shop. And once I open the book, I disappear from the story and I become the diggers in this little push this series of characters who mm. are kind of heading off overseas so kind of aussie lads from from the the early 20th century yeah how difficult is it to um tap into as a, as an actor and uh, comedian to to tap into the minds of uh characters from such a different time yes yeah. they're still human with all the, the the cares and concerns and worries and hopes and fears and going off on a great adventure etc cetera, etc cetera. but we live in such a different world now so a much more cynical world yeah kind of how do you present their story uncynically i in some ways, that's why I introduced myself into the story, just to show, to have a juxtaposition between, you know, um, the hundred years of how people are approaching the world and linguistically. I think that's probably my favourite part of it from all the... I read copiously. I read probably a dozen diaries and various books just to get the feel of the language, the long-winded way they go about saying simple things. And also their worldview is so tiny, so myopic. Um and the, I've tried to capture that. You'd, you'd read the diary of a farmer and they'd be driving through, you know, Marseille and all the, the, the comment on was, oh, I reckon sorghum would grow all right here. <laughs> so I try to capture that. Like, they're, they're, their minds are being blown, but they're always trying to pull it back to their limited experience. So I try to capture that. Um, and that was fun. You know, it was fun trying to get that, get that language and the uh, social mores of the day. And also they were pretty... You know, th- these guys were they were out in the tear as well. It was, you know, the earliest Contiki tour. <laughs> the, it's uh, that notion of the kind of I don't know um, young men in the prime of their life who suddenly don't have mum and their older sister breathing yeah. down their necks when kind of like I mean, if you grew up in a, on a farm, kind of dates would have been chaperoned and all those kind of things. Absolutely. So, yeah. Suddenly, these young lads are off overseas, having uh, their 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 minds opened. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, as you say, kind of uh, layerizing up a little. bit. As well, yeah, and and particularly, well, Egypt to a degree, but in France, the 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 attitudes of and the independence of French women really 
rankled with some of them and delighted <laughs> the others. Uh, and you can see them kind of change a bit, you know, and they were, very, they were incredibly racist as well. So they weren't, in Egypt, they weren't necessarily, they were kind of almost dehumanising the prostitutes and so on. You can tell that in the writing. But when they got to France and they were, they looked like them, but they sounded different, there was a, there was a bit more of a twinkle in their eye about, oh, maybe, uh, maybe I'm not going to get home as chaste as I thought I was. <laughs> These are all quite complex ideas to put into a comedy show, and then particularly dealing with the horror and the reality mm. of war as well, because the show does begin as comedy and then you add some poignancy to it based on the reviews I've read. I've not yeah. had the pleasure of seeing it myself. but So that's a, a, a tough act to try and work all of these issues around yeah, uh, uh, Australian racism overseas, yeah. Uh, bloodshed and slaughter uh, uh, in in France or at Gallipoli and, and elsewhere as well to put all of that into a comedy show. Yeah, I guess um, what I tried to do was capture the characters um, and let the audience invest in them. And there's there's a little even after I introduce the characters, there's a little bit of fourth wall breaking, and um, I, I incorporate one of the audience members into being one of the push from improvisation I do earlier in the show. So that kind of brings them into their into their group. So when they, it's, it's really interesting actually that you would think when I say because I I start each bit by saying the date, you know, April twenty fifth, and it says on the blackboard on the stage at 9.15 everyone knows it's Gallipoli and everything kind of slows down and I go into this quite long narration it's amazing how often you can hear gasps in the audience when they realise that bad things have happened, like to the actual people, like they know they know historically that bad things are going to happen but they've invested in these characters so that kind of, that allows the tragedy to happen through characters who have been making them laugh I suppose um, but then once you've dipped the toe in tragedy, you can't... Even though it's World War One, I, I don't stay there too long. I always, And that's the beauty of the diaries in themselves. Often there'd be something horrific would happen and then you'd turn the page and they'd be complaining about um, the Red Cross parcels that had come or something really mundane, because that's when they wrote. They wrote when they were bored and had time. Um, and they delved into the minutiae of, you know, boring soldier life. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, it, the diary in itself gives me the opportunity just to flick the switch back and forth from pathos to comedy. The show we're talking about is The Lost World War One Diary by Damien Callanan, which um, premiered at the Comedy Festival. I did it last, last year. year, yeah, and then I rebooted it this year um, and did Adelaide, Perth, Melbourne, um, and a few school shows too. I did a kind of slightly revised version um, in schools. And uh, yeah, the re- it's interesting having a year off a show and then come back to it and fiddle with it and the tinkering went really well like it went from a good show to a to a really, really, good, really show. good show well, certainly judging from the reviews of like five stars from the adelaide advertiser five stars over at fringe world uh, in perth from australian stage uh, and elsewhere so kind of really good positive warm responses and it warm is uh, is something i stress because it yeah. can like people can uh, laugh at a well crafted show but there's there seems to be a real element of of humanity that you're conveying yeah. in this story as well and particularly i was a little worried that get lost in the morass of all the um, all the World War One, one stuff this year, yeah. but in, in contrast, people have actually kind of gone. Oh no, this is yeah, this is what we expected. Not the um, just rolling it out and the Woolworths fresh sponsorship nonsense. Um, 
that it had a little bit of heart and you yeah. know, come at it from a slightly different angle. It's it's the challenging thing about commemorating something as tragic as World War One is that some of the stuff I've seen is definitely falls more into the glorifying side of yeah. it. Uh, so uh, it also allowed, it's kind of interesting the show. We talk about trying to capture 100 years ago. There's a lot. There's a lot of deliberate anachronisms in the show as well, which are comedic, but also some of them are allowed to make comment about um, contemporary issues that I hadn't even expected. There's one moment towards the end of the show where the main character is talking about because the, the originals, as they were called, the um, Gallipoli originals, were scarce by the end of the war. You know, by pure attrition, and they started to send them home early before, while the conflict was still going. And this is true. They started, you know, going, we should immortalise these guys. And they started talking about knighthoods for them. And um, the main character says, ah, oh, I don't know about knighthoods. Yeah, that's for last century. <laughs> and it's it's a great, like, it's in the middle of a fairly tragic sort of moment. But, you know, without even having to, you know, without, I, it's not an anachronism. Like, it's actually probably what he thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a nice pointed way so, to talk yeah. about our current times. Yeah. yeah. Damien Callanan's The Lost World War One Diary is uh, touring nationally uh, in Victoria, coming up uh, at the Alexander Theatre at Monash University, Clayton. Two shows only at 2.30pm and 7.30pm on the 25th of July. Uh, on the 27th of July, it's going to the Doncaster Playhouse. Uh, on the 28th of July, it's going to Williamstown Town Hall. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Williamstown Town Hall. Uh, uh, and then on to regional Victoria as well. Yeah, so um, if people want to find out where it's touring regionally, you can go to my website, damiancallanan.com.au. There's a gig guide there. But, yeah, so WA after Tassie, so, so Tassie, I am WA, on a tour Victoria. of Victoria. Yeah, you really yeah. are. How long is the tour in total? Uh, about two months, yeah, and then back with, for a with, little bit more. With breaks or just uh, constant two months? A couple of days here and there. So about three days between the Victoria and WA. So just enough time to do the do the washing. Yeah, just to you know clean out my utensils, my <laughs> <laughs> smalls. Uh, if you would like to see Damien Callanan's The Lost World War One Diary, as I said, uh, the first show coming up, uh, 2.30 and 7.30 on the 25th of July at the Alexander Theatre, Monash University, Clayton. Uh, more info at www.monash.edu uh, forward slash mapper. Um, oh, there's a long and complicated URL. I'm not going to read that out. Just go to damiencallanan.com.au and you'll find all the details you need to book for the various shows at Clayton, Doncaster, Williamstown. Or if you're listening to us in regional Victoria or Tassie, uh, Damien Callanan coming to a, a theatre near you. Mate, thanks for coming in. No problem, mate. Thank you. Um, we're going to hear just an excerpt now from uh, uh, an Australian composer, F.S. Kelly, a work called Elegy, which he composed behind the lines at Gallipoli in 1915. You're tuned to Triple R 102.7 on your FM dial and streaming around the planet at rrr.org.au. Just before those announcements, we heard uh, an extract from Elegy in Memoriam Rupert Brook by Australian composer F.S. Kelly, which he composed behind the lines at Gallipoli in 1915. I'm not going to play the, the whole piece, but uh, it's a lovely piece of music if uh, you get the chance to track it down. Um, out through ABC Classics on a, a two-disc set, um, which is looking at... Uh, the music of World War One. Uh, now, 
On a different note, let's talk about visual art and, and how you activate a city and a space in the evening and how you provide a different art experience. I'm joined in the studio now by Deborah Stahl, who's the co-founder of Night Art, which is now in its third year and which is representative, perhaps, of a global shift in, in other cities about how we look at art, how we experience art. Would it be fair to say, Deborah, that for a lot of people who have a nine-to-five job, they on a weekend they may be too tired to go to a gallery and of course if they're working during the day they don't really have the time to go out and look at art so the solution seems to be open the galleries late at night. Absolutely Um, Richard that was certainly one of the observations that we had um, made that people were very much looking for flexibility and and exactly as you said that opportunity to be able to um, see art outside of regular hours. And there's something about the going to a gallery late at night that I don't know there's there's some Something just uh, anything that shifts your regular experience and your regular exactly. life and breaks that routine kind of adds a sense of adventure to an evening. Absolutely. Um, when we uh, first started talking about the idea of um, night art, it was really the the night aspect that seemed to capture people's imagination, and, and from that moment, we were able to develop that kind of energy and um, momentum around the event. And so what you've done over successive years, and this is the third year of Night Art, is kind of create a series of precincts around the city where people can, they can just spend the evening in one precinct and a couple of hours going from gallery to gallery, or they can really make a night of it and and cross the town and have different art experiences in different places. Absolutely. Um, The way that we've um, approached Night Art, or the way that we've um, designed or curated how you might like to sort of describe it, there's different different ways to get involved, certainly um, from a precinct where people would choose that's where I'd like to be for the night. They can also go onto the website, uh, onto the Art and Artist page and see what work might inspire them and what we would then say is curate your own night in the city. We've also um, put together a series of art walks uh, for people to to be able to kind of follow uh, that's responsive to different interests. So let's talk about some of the precincts that uh, that have been mapped out across mm. the city because for, for people who haven't done night art before, mm. trying to get from one side of the city to another mm. could be a bit of a challenge, mm. um, particularly if you actually want to spend time lingering and looking at artwork. So you've got th- um, what three different precincts. It, yes, uh, three precincts. So there's Melbourne University. Uh, Mel- they came on board last year and there's some fantastic experiences to be had up there where their museums uh, and galleries are open. Um, Patrick um, Pound, there's um, an intervention at the uh, the Granger Museum that opens up on the night. So there's lots to do up there. Then we've created really what would be a, um, a big precinct. We've called it City Central. So there's lots to see and do there. Within the heart of that City Central, there's Flinders Lane. So there's the opportunity to start right up the top of town at, say, Murray White Gallery, and then make your way down to the Nicholas Building, where there's a number of galleries. Um, turn right and find yourself at uh, Underground in the uh, Capitol Arcade at Fort Delta. Now, all this is happening next Thursday, the 23rd of July, um, and an evening of uh, essentially self-curated art tours where you can stroll from gallery to gallery, maybe have a glass of wine along the way, stop off and see a range of artworks. Um, so there's over 15 of the kind of independent and commercial and artist-run spaces who are, uh, who are opening late for night art, 10 public museums and institution spaces, and a 
range of public art commissions as well, so that even the journey between spaces has been broken up and, and again, encouraging you to see the city in a different light. Exactly. Absolutely. Now... One of the things that struck me about the first night art, um, where I work in the city, uh, in Guildford Lane, yes. um, uh, a couple of galleries there, had not only opened their doors, but they lit up the laneway as well. There were little tea candles out along the, the footpath yes. and so on. So there re- it really did create a different sense in the, in the, in a familiar space and a different... It really was a different energy about the city that evening. Yeah, that was enormously sort of successful, that um, the light installation down uh, Guildford Lane, and it would be wonderful to be able to uh, create more of those experiences within the night. Um, but that's all very limited by budget. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there are nonetheless kind of um, special events that are happening. So uh, um, at the Russell Street substation, for example, you've got there's you've got work. There's, uh, there's something ha- happening at Hamer Hall as well. So the partners uh, involved are, are are putting on kind of special events that people can experience. Yes, look, it's it's just fantastic the way that uh, the 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 support that's um, been able to. Um to be sort of created over the last few years and the special programming that's been put in place. So, yes, we do have sort of the major institutions uh, like ACME, Mediatek and the Arts Centre, uh, Hamer Hall, looking at some special programming to coincide with night art right through to the very um, smaller, hidden um, underground spaces that are doing fantastic uh, work as well. For people who've, uh, who aren't that familiar with the, the Melbourne visual art and gallery scene, for example, night art is obviously a great opportunity for them to, to go out and explore that. If, they were, if you were to just recommend one precinct or one area of town to concentrate on for, for, for beginners, for example, so that they can dip their toe into the waters of night art, familiarise themselves with it but not be overwhelmed, is there one place you'd recommend people start? Uh, look, I would probably have to go. Um, that's a really hard question. Yeah, and I, I know. It's, it's like asking someone to choose their favourite child I or something. I know, because I keep having to tell everybody it's all fabulous um, and so forth. But I, perhaps we would think about... Uh, I would make that suggestion, as as I mentioned earlier, to start at Murray White Gallery, um, make your way then down Flinders Lane, because uh, I think there you very much get a snapshot of the depth and diversity and complexity of what's on offer. If you would like more information about Night Art, then uh, visit nightart.com.au. As we said, it's happening next Thursday, the 23rd of July, and it's an opportunity to kind of curate your own late night, well, all night really, uh, art walk event, drifting from gallery to gallery, looking at work, talking to artists, um, uh, exploring installations on the way. So multiple galleries, multiple art. I think there's something like 75 artists whose work will be represented. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, once the galleries start to close uh, within the city, what we're encouraging people to do is to go up to the late night hub up at the Ian Potter uh, Museum that'll be open to midnight and there'll be a band there, the Orb Weavers, and that'll be, you know, a really lovely kind of social um, opportunity to get um, up close and personal with art artists and other art lovers. So it all kicks off at, from, uh, at 6pm next Thursday, the 23rd of July, uh, and uh, the chance to see the Orb Weavers is an added bonus. So uh, Night Art uh, is the event next Thursday the 23rd from 6pm uh, and more information at nightart.com.au. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you so much, Richard. I'll see you on the night. You will. <laughs>
Heart, the name of that track by Camera Obscura from their album Desire Lines. Richard Watts with you here. You're listening to Smart Arts. I'm joined in the studio now by director Damien Ryan, whose uh, production of Hamlet, uh, a Bell Shakespeare production, opened in Melbourne last night. Uh, Damien, I'm guessing the after party didn't kick on too late because you're looking very fresh. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yeah. No, they did unwind a little bit. It's been a, a huge process getting a play like Hamlet up, so uh, it was great to get through the opening. Now, for, for actors, certainly, Hamlet is one of the great roles that, yeah. uh, for male actors at least, that is one of those things that everybody at some point wants to play. Mm. What is Does the play have the same status for directors? Oh, I think so, yeah. It's a, it's a, certainly one that tends to attract uh, people who love the theatre generally, you know, from designers to directors to even to fight choreographers. It's an exciting play for their discipline, you know. So, yeah, very much so. I, it's, a, it's a play that I've come to several times over the last 20 years and it never ceases to, to reward you. It's just such a bottomless well of possibilities and it's a play defined by its ambiguity I suppose so every time you come to it there's an endless interpretive options available to you that all can be supported by the text and I think that's I guess why it endures because it's so um, it ans- it asks questions rather than answering them I suppose and, and Shakespeare tries to explore all the contradictory notions of, of the way human beings think and and behave and so that's you know I guess as a director that's the stuff you want to work on. The notion of trying to uh, create certainty around uncertainty mm. is, is really your challenge in some ways, isn't it? Because as you say, the, there's so much ambiguity in the play, but nonetheless, as a director, you have to know... You have to make choices. Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about the approach you've made for this particular production. Yeah, How, sure. Tell us about context and staging. Yeah, well, I, certainly one thing that I get a bit obsessed about working on these these great plays is to understand the context in which he wrote them. I think that's always invaluable and yet the world has changed and many of our our reference points and our understanding of the way families particularly might behave or the way the social group might behave or the way status works have really changed and and so in approaching a play like this I like to think of it every day in the rehearsal we talk about it as if it were a new play. What does it mean to us now? What does this family relationship mean to us now? And that's I think the secret to Shakespeare is, is trying to unlock with clarity the relationships between human beings because that's what he observes so well and so look this production I guess I've taken uh, a very contemporary approach it feels like a a, a hopefully quite a holistic um, Danish or Scandinavian court Uh, the quality of light in the production and and the design is I guess trying to bring the character of Elsinore alive in the theatre and so we've built this huge sort of glass edifice which represents uh, the power wall of, of this castle which is really central to the way Shakespeare tells the story you know he puts us in this noir like wonderful forbidding place that's both palace and prison you know in its own in its own right and and I really wanted to make that that world of Elsinore as clear and palpable to the audience as I could and so it's a contemporary take but the the, the main thing I think we spend our time working on in the rehearsal room is is the three big elements of the play one being a, a political thriller which it is it's about a cold war War drama, which is something we can all understand today, you know, and the way the Cold War influences our our social world, that suddenly your freedom of thought and freedom of expression get quashed because the state is fearing its borders and its border control, something even Australians can understand, you know, so suddenly our phones are being tapped and suddenly our conversations are being listened to and and so those elements I wanted to bring out very strongly and, and uh, finally, as I said, family, you know, these plays are as big as nations but they're as, as small as 
families, all the great tragedies, King Lear, Macbeth, are just about the way families are dysfunctional and the way they hurt each other. And that's, you know, dysfunctional families are something that you and I and everyone are experts in. So I think that's part of the reason the play still appeals to us. Now, you spoke earlier about kind of trying to find a a clarity uh, to the work Mm. uh, and particularly in terms of the relationships between the characters within it. Um, Before you got involved in theatre, you were a journalist. Mm. Has that journalistic eye... Have you kept that journalistic eye in terms of analysing and looking at story? Yeah, I think think the the desire to be a journalist was was just a love of writing and uh, that's the same thing that's led me to to primarily focus on Shakespeare or at least plays of language in my career. Career. You know, I, I like to work on plays that uh, that use the power of words very, very uh, at the you know centre of their storytelling, and and I guess that that love of writing is what led me to Shakespeare in the first place. And so, yeah, I think that anal- the analytical part of, of pulling a play apart in the rehearsal room is almost the most exciting part. You know, once I've been, even if I'm working as an actor, once I've been through that rehearsal process and we start performing, I almost want to let that one go and start another one. You know, I think it's the, the detective work that's exciting, I think. Well, you have the opportunity to do that in some ways because mm. you're a freelance director yes. uh, with, with Bell Shakespeare. You've also acted with the company. Mm. Uh, and I think it was in 2009 you established your own company, Sport for Jove, yeah. an independent kind of part of the small to medium sector, I guess, yes. which certainly reinforces the, um, the, the inter interrelated nature of the Australian theatre sector. Very much so, yeah. Independent theatre, I think, is the is the place there's so many artists, not only actors, even even backstage crew, creatives, designers, etc. If we if we purely relied upon the mainstream companies, of which there are very few in, in a in a country like ours, um, to produce all the work, no one would be able to develop their skills or their talent. And so the independent theatre sector I know is extraordinary in Melbourne and Sydney, you know, is a very energetic place for it as well. And it's just such a wonderful breeding ground and a bridging place for artists, emerging artists, and also there's not enough work for the for the real top artists out there too, and they'll often turn up in a in an independent play at, in in one of the nice venues around Sydney or Melbourne. So yeah, it's a really it's an important part of what we do. And I started Sport for Jove purely to create work for people, and we do a lot of education work. and And, uh, and Bell is such a you know as we know 25 years worth of of taking these plays all over the country. So it's an important I think it's an important job we do, particularly for young people. Oh. Now, the uh, the to introduce people to Hamlet as a character is mm. also one of your roles. And Hamlet is a fascinating character on a number of levels, partially because he's an anti-hero. He's not a heroic character at all. Yeah. I mean, he's a misogynist. He prevaricates. Yes. Kind of like... If I was one of Hamlet's friends at court, I'd probably want to slap him at some point. (laughs) Make up your bloody mind. That's right. You want Horatio to shake him at the end and say, what are we living for and what are you dying for, Hamlet? You know, he seems to lose his way completely by Act 5. To then have... Uh, a play focused around such, in in some ways, such an unlikable character, mm. or it's such a difficult character. Um, is that one of the reasons that it's a great play? Because it's a an early example of an anti-hero, and none, and such a rich, flawed, and fascinating character. Because not forgetting that this is officially called the tragedy of Hamlet, yes, Prince right. of Denmark. So he is a tragic character. Um, he's not the the kind of active, plot-driven hero that no. we expect from so much drama. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? I often find the fascination with this character that's, you know, so many centuries of it now and it's not looking like stopping. I find it so unusual when you really think about the storytelling. A guy is told by his 
by his dead father to carry out a medieval revenge crime and we we think of revenge in our modern world now as being the ultimate you know hideousness of existence it's no way to cleanse a society or purify anything and yet this play this revenge tragedy about this prevaricating hero is still the play that we think speaks to every epoch and every culture and i think it is simply because Shakespeare has such a gift for uh, giving a character uh, a, it's almost a characterless shape in which an actor a fascinating brilliant actor bears his soul uh, in a very very intimate way on that stage in front of people uh, and the play is full of other characters who are hiding out there in public and, and but Hamlet is just raw and that's thrilling I think and yes we in some scenes I love the way he can be shocking to Ophelia or something and basically commit almost an assault you know if you take the text at face value twice on Ophelia and uh, something we would despise anyone for you know it would be a scandal for Prince Harry to behave in this way and then he can come on three minutes later and suddenly we're in the palm of his hand and laughing with him and I think it, it just his flaws and contradictions are what make him so human and the, the excitement for someone like Josh is not to try to iron out those contradictions and find a you know a clever through line through the play the excitement is to play the contradictions because that's what that's what we're all like you know we can all think we know what we want and then 10 minutes later we're saying to be or not to be why why do I even want to live another day you know it's a very it captures pretty essentially the the strange you know abstract uh, broken shell that that defines our lives you know Bell Shakespeare's Hamlet opened at Art Centre Melbourne last night and is running through until the 25th of July. Uh, if you'd like to book artcentremelbourne.com.au uh, and bellshakespeare.com.au. Um, I believe uh, before it came to Melbourne, it previewed it uh, in orange. Yes, freezing yeah. orange. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and is then going off on a significant national tour. So after Art Centre Melbourne, it's off to Ballarat, Nunawading, Mildura, Albany, Bunbury... Perth, Newcastle, and many, many other places. <laughs> it's quicker to name where it's not going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, for more information, as I said, bellshakespeare.com.au uh, and to book for this season at Art Centre Melbourne, just go to artcentremelbourne.com.au. We've been speaking to Damien Ryan, the director of Hamlet. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. just listening to Gold Class and their track Life as a Gun. Uh, it is 10 minutes to 11am. My next guest has joined me in the studio. Fleur Kilpatrick is a theatre maker, uh, a writer, a, uh, a blogger. Um, arts commentator. Arts commentator, we'll yeah. Podcaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Finger in a few things. pies and uh, uh, is the new presenter of our Shoot the Messenger segment, which has been uh, on hold for a little while. So uh, it's lovely to have you back. Thank you. Lovely to be back. Yeah. So um, the last time you were in, we raved about a, a couple of shows. We did. We'd had a particularly good fortnight in theatre, I think. And that, um, and there's still some really exciting stuff, but I think maybe stuff that we might argue about a little bit more than we did last week. That's last possible. week we were just like Infused. glowing posi positivity, but we'll see. But um, So I wanted to talk about Last Supper, which presented by um, international company The Reckless Sleepers in conjunction with the Malt House and with the National Gallery. 
Gallery Victoria. So you saw this one as well, Richard? I did, yes. Uh, it's actually the second time I've seen it. I saw it originally at the Brisbane Powerhouse a mm. few years ago for the World Theatre Festival. Yeah, well, so this is a show that's been touring for 10 years at this point. Um, yeah, so I it was, it's an incredibly simple premise at its heart and there's a beautiful description actually in their director's notes just saying like this is how it came about we said hey maybe we should do something about last words maybe I would like to eat everyone's last words great we could use rice paper that's the whole premise and then someone said what about these last meals as well so it's literally you've got about 45 audience members sitting in a semicircle at banquet tables and just the theatre company does exactly what they that initial idea was they just go through and say a bunch of people's last words and eat them uh, and they bring out last meals and place them in front of you the last meal requests of death row prisoners so it's incredibly simple there's no judgment there's no um they don't form an opinion on them or present them in a particular way. It's very, very simple. It, it, it's almost performed without commentary. Absolutely. Uh, allowing you to, to comment and interpret yourself as you listen to these last words. And they're the, the, the final words of people, heroes and villains of history. So you've mm. got uh, Rasputin, you've got Marilyn Monroe, but also some imagined last words. That's one of the things I found fascinating mm. about the work as it progresses we move from almost banal final words to uh, the Wicked Witch of the West, for example. Yes. Uh, her yeah. last words be, uh, are added into the mix. And imagined last words of dozens of people going about their ordinary lives in Hiroshima on the day yeah. that the bomb was dropped. That was an incredibly moving thing. They just said sort of a small boy in Hiroshima and just the scale of that event meant that they had so many people to choose from so they were just stuffing last words into their mouths until they couldn't speak them anymore, which was just stunning. But it's incredible not not presenting them as an opinion, not... not um, forming any judgments on them makes it an incredibly human and really intimate experience. It's this sense that, like, one of the words that got to me most was Eva Bruins. And, you know, I don't believe in evil as a concept, but that's, you know, getting up there about as close as you can get to calling someone's actions in their life evil. And her last words being, I do, was an incredibly moving concept just to think, oh, this person who is so hated their last words were ones of love is an amazing thought likewise to have the food that was someone's last request on this earth put in front of you and offered with a fork to eat it is a very intense experience um and for everyone that did eat something which the night that i went just about everyone did eat something i think it was a, it's quite a thing to to eat someone's last chili dog. There's a, <laughs> the night I uh, attended the Last Supper, no one touched the food, which I found fascinating. It was almost as if the food had undergone transubstantiation to become uh, to the embodiment of these death row prisoners yes. whose last meals they were. There was uh, such a, a sense of ritual about mm. the the delivery of the, the food that it just sat there untouched. It wasn't until the end of the production that uh, more wine had been poured and people started to relax that someone started to nibble the fruit platter. Yeah. Uh, I think the only thing that was touched uh, was uh, strawberry milk yes. uh, was sipped politely. But it's a, it's, a, it's a really intriguing work, The Last Supper. I, it, it's, 
Not, I think it struggles a little bit in the space at the NGV. Mm. Uh, the the sound, I think, suffers a little bit. The actors trying to deliver their lines in this echoing, cavernous space mm. presents a challenge for the sound design in particular. Yeah, it's also an amazingly intimate work given we don't often see work this intimate from an international company. Usually when an international company comes, they're on in like this big space in the arts com- in the arts uh, centre and thousands of us are pushed into this one big room and it's big and it's visual and it's loud and it was interesting just to see this thing where with 45 people and at the end you have amazingly intimate conversations as well with the strangers you are sitting next to you know you find yourself asking what would your last supper be what would your last meal and this one guy was like oh I'm a vegetarian so I think I'd like to eat meat maybe maybe I'd try eating meat for my last meal that's an incredible thing to be able to share with with a group of strangers and to be able to come out of an experience like that, sharing. So sadly, uh, this particular work finished a couple of days ago. Sorry about that. Yeah, we just... But we it's, <laughs> we wanted to talk about it because it's an intriguing work. So that was The Last Supper uh, mm-hmm. presented by the Malthouse Theatre from uh, Reckless Sleepers. Reckless the, Sleepers, the yeah. And they'll be back out again with other shows, I'm sure. They're constantly touring and they tour works for about 10, 13 years, some of their work. So maybe you'll catch it on a second time round. Well, let's talk now about a show that is still on. Uh, yeah. I don't know if there are any tickets available for it. I didn't check that one before we came in. Well, I think there would be, though. I um, would hope so, and it wouldn't surprise me if it gets an addition. If there is the demand that it may get an additional show on the weekend, uh, it's called "We Get It," presented by independent company Elbow Room, and uh, it's part of this year's MTC Neon Festival of Independent Theatre. It is now. It's. I think Elbow Room is an incredibly important company for Melbourne. They're actually from Brisbane originally, the key artists, but they've been making work here for the last few years. I say this. And I'll have to explain what I mean, but I think that they often make theatrical essays, and this can sound more boring than I mean it to be if you if you didn't grow up in my family and think an essay is a really exciting thing. But what I mean is that they make visual and visceral and emotive and entertaining these incredibly big, complex, esoteric comp- uh, uh, concepts, and that's absolutely true if we get it. It's about feminism and it's about how we read bodies of actors and actresses on stage it very much takes as a given it says no you're trying to be politically correct but you are forming judgments the instant you see us you have put us into a category and as does the entire artistic community so you had a cast of five women talking all fighting essentially or competing for a chance to star in an mtc play next year the premise is that it is a competition for who will get to be the next heroine and the various issues that come up about casting someone of Indian descent or uh, various different... Or an, an, an Indigenous an woman. An Indigenous woman. As, uh, as uh, in a Greek tragedy, for example. Absolutely, yeah. So it was... It's a difficult play, I don't think, and and I'm very sure that it's meant to be a difficult play as well. There are easy things that this company could have done to make 
this a more easy experience for the audience? For example, there's one point where which feels like an ending. And at preview, quite a few people said to them, "Why well, you should be ending it there. They know this. They are very smart makers. They have decided not to not to take the easy role, to take the easy way out in terms of their structure. The dramaturgy reflects the subject matter in that it is complex and tough and demanding for an audience to sit through. If they ended it at that point, the audience could sit there and feel really safe in the knowledge that we get it, we're already the good people, you don't need to be telling this to us, you're preaching to the converted. But they push past the point of comfort and make it at us as much as at, you know, the big bad misogynists out there. One of the things that I found so fascinating about this production, We Get It, is how um, how of the moment it is. Uh, yes, it's an interrogation of sexism in the theatre. It's also an interrogation of the banality of uh, reality TV in mm. popular culture. It's also um, uh, examining and questioning the definition of excellence in the theatre, which yes. uh, is a, a very pointed commentary on uh, the new national program for excellence that has diverted money from the Australia Council, where... Uh, if it was in that money was still in Osco, it would go towards the very sorts of independent theatre works that this show is. Mm. Uh, uh, so it's a it's a multi layered show, and one of the things that I found really compelling about it was I'm a. Uh, a, uh, a middle-aged white gay man who identifies as a, as a feminist or as a feminist sympathiser. Uh, I get it. I, I, mm. I get uh, inequality. Uh, but then to be reminded of... Well, not reminded, but to be told about aspects of sexism that I have never considered mm. sexism in the, re- in the rehearsal studio, for example. Um, yeah. uh, there were elements of this that... Uh, where I laughed out loud and there were other elements where I was genuinely shocked and provoked and and made to realise how narrow my my view is. Mm. That, that part about the rehearsal room was particularly moving to me that uh, there's a beautiful monologue shared by two of the actors about the experience of drama school and about going in every day and having actors as part of their exploration perform acts of sexual violence on each other and on the females in their ensemble and having the director say well you need to look after yourself so you know and my the thought that came to me in this moment was oh maybe people who haven't been to drama school think this is an exaggeration or think that's as if that's someone's daily experience for three years if you've been to drama school you're like yeah yeah that's you, you see actors coming out shaky from rehearsal rooms constantly from that experience. So that was an incredibly moving and distressing thing to be reminded of, that this why is this the norm for our young artists who are, who are most for the most part, very young? And it's a very confronting thing to have as part of your training, a training that teaches women to be good victims and teaches men to be good victimizers hopefully in a way that will not physically hurt the other person but if you can 
victimise your castmates in a way that keeps them physically safe, you're doing great work in physical class, in movement classes. There's a lot to unpick and unpack in the this new production from Elbow Room. Tickets are still available. Uh, there are four performances left of We Get It. Uh, there's low availability for tickets tonight at 7.30, Friday night at 7.30, Saturday night at 7.30, but plenty of still tickets available for the 4pm show on Sunday. Mm. So uh, we're both recommending that one. Absolutely. Uh, just quickly to wrap up, a uh, couple of shows coming up. Anything coming up that you'd recommend that yes, people keep an eye out on? absolutely. I'm very excited to see I Am a Miracle. In fact, I'm so excited that I went a week early by mistake, but that's okay. I went home again. Um, so that is on at the Malt House, and that's written by Declan Green, who is one of the most remarkable playwrights around in Australia. His Part of his work is through Sisters Grimm, so queer, subversive high camp theatre is part of what he does but this is a very different side of Declan and he excels equally in this side as a more traditional playwright I want to say and this is a work with the newly appointed artistic director of the Malt House Matt Lutton Uh, and it is kind of a bit of a theme from Last Supper actually but just talking a lot about injustices, miscarriages of justice throughout several hundred years, particularly the title comes from a quote from the final words of a convicted murderer Marvin Lee Wilson he said, I ain't left yet must be a miracle, I am a miracle and he was executed in 2012 despite evidence that his IQ put him into the intellectually disabled uh, range and so it's about those kind of miscarriages Carriages of Justice and looking at that. I'm particularly excited, as I always am, anytime I see Bert Labonte's name on a bill um, as an actor. I'm thrilled about that. I'm also thrilled that this is also a very much a collaboration with a composer, David Christholm. Uh, um, David Chisholm. Chisholm, thank and you. And given that the last time Matt Lutton and David Chisholm collaborated on a piece, uh, uh, it was uh, The Bloody Chamber, yeah. uh, which was a superb piece of work. So, yeah. Yeah, so very much intrigued to see I Am a Miracle at the Malthouse. That's uh, coming mm-hmm. up and uh, yeah and then both of us are next week going to be saying, seeing Cuckoo by Jane Miller which we're very excited about as well great to just see new Australian writing that's going on at 45 downstairs and is running through until the 26th of July um, that's been getting some really exciting re- reviews and we're also looking forward to seeing Made in China by TBC Theatre, which is uh, by Irish playwright Marco Rao, who is just one of the most exciting voices coming out of Ireland at the moment. Just visceral, nasty, sweary, blokey, delicious, theatrical goodness. If you want to listen to an interview with the... Uh, playwright and director of Cuckoo. You can check out uh, last week's show on Radio On Demand on Triple R. And if you want to know more about... um, Made uh, in China? Made in China. That's the previous fortnight. Uh, There's an interview that you can catch up with there as well. Flo Kilpatrick, thank you for joining us. We'll catch you in a fortnight's time uh, at the new regular time of 10am to talk more theatre goodness. Terrific. Thanks, Richard. From the album She'd Need a Heart, that's Ben Mason and his short but beautiful little track, And I Wail.
Nine minutes past 11am, my penultimate guest for the morning has joined me in the studio, Ang Haridwin Jones from Arts House, uh, which has just celebrated 10 excellent years of presenting new work. It's uh, not all of which you have been responsible for, Ang Harrod, but uh, a good chunk of it nonetheless. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Happy 10th anniversary. Awesome. Uh, you kicked off uh, that 10th anniversary with an exhibition and a party. We did. You can't have a birthday without a party. (laughs) And we had a brilliant party that was um, curated by Peter Knight from the Australian Art Orchestra and Anthony Hamilton, who's one of our new artists in residence at Arts House um, this year. And they put together a phenomenal program of extraordinary composers, percussionists, musicians and some beautiful dancers. And it was a, a kind of mini mofo, mini Melbourne on a cold winter's night. We, we got in there and we had a great time. Now, uh, let's talk perhaps uh, before we go into the future program for Arts House. Uh, the exhibition that's, uh, that I believe is still on is an opportunity for people to reflect on what Art House has come to represent in terms of creative culture. And certainly to me, one of the things that it represents is um, hybridity in art uh, and that kind of new wave of performance that we've seen emerge that you could call live art, you could call participatory art. Uh, but that's what art house means to me. What does it mean to you? Yeah, I think you've nailed it, Richard. I think, I, yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, I, it's it's responsive. So I, when you look back over the 10 years, you know, you, you see um, different kind of collaborations that have emerged, different um, focuses, I suppose, in different practices. And, and, you know, sometimes it feels like we're, looking at a lot of Sydney-based artists that are coming in, people like Post and... Um and then, you know, there's a stronger kind of resurgence around Melbourne-based artists. So you, you see this beautiful ebb and flow. But I think, yeah, what characterises it is experimental work that's on the edges of whatever conventional art form discipline, you know, is is um, you could ascribe to it. So it it's, um, yeah, it's all about that, that nexus, I think, between... Um, between art forms, between experimental ideas, between the kind of urgency of people's inquiry into that. Now, as well as celebrating that 10th anniversary, it obviously means that part of that process is about looking back at the past. It's also about looking to the future. You've just recently launched the program for the remaining six months of the year, a range of work, of residencies, of dance pieces, of, uh, of, of new theatre works and more. But let's look to the next 10 years. What do you want Arts House to be doing in another 10 years' time? Oh, Richard, you always ask the good question. I was all lined up to talk about the next six months. 10 years. I mean, I I suppose I, I think that in terms of... Um, the notion of experimental, you know, hopefully we've got no idea what will happen in 10 years' time. So hopefully um, anything I say would be, you know, pretty much instantly redundant. But I think, you know, some of the things that that we can see around um, connection with digital technologies, what it actually means in a live performance, which is predominantly what we do. I mean, we're, you know, clearly interdisciplinary, but there's a majority of the work is is happening live um in some kind of connection with an audience, live audience. But I think increasingly that interface with digital technologies, with the screen, with the way that we actually think about, you know, um, what realness is, what liveness is, is going to become really significant in, in people's practices. So whilst 
I'm sure that we will always want to get together um, physically in the same space and have sex and, you know, all of that um, and see theatre. I, I also think that there's going to be a kind of explosion around what that sort of mediated experience might be. And it, to me that feels really exciting. It feels like um, a whole generational shift and it feels like it opens up possibilities of connecting to audiences and connecting people to people in a way that you know within the kind of enclave of an experimental arts focus it's sometimes you know harder to to reach um people that you know maybe feel like art isn't for them Let's talk uh, about some of the artists who will be involved in presenting work uh, at Arts House over the next six months. There's certainly some familiar names that leap out at me already. Joe Lloyd, who is a regular guest on this show, uh, uh, talking uh, as part of our fortnightly Dancing on the Radio segment, uh, which is not happening today, I should point out. Uh, it's been uh, postponed for a fortnight. Um, uh, Nicola Gunn presenting work as well. But there are also plenty of artists and names I'm completely unfamiliar with, which is a real delight. Great. Yes, we specialise in that. Um, so, yeah, we're kicking off the season with um, Ahalan Ratnamohan, who's an extraordinary performer, Sydney-based, well, actually also Brussels-based. Um, and he uh, began life, or certainly uh, at some point in his life, he's been a professional soccer player. Um, and then he um, trained as a filmmaker and as a performance maker. And this work is his solo work, which he describes as a soccer dance work, which is, you know, great. <laughs> Good combination of um, disciplines. And it's a, um, a very physical, visceral portrayal of his phenomenal expertise as a soccer player but then within the context of um of a performative experience for an audience so we're yeah delighted to be um presenting him and that's part of the mobile states um network that we're part of that's such a critical uh capacity i suppose for for presenters to move work around the country and for audiences so important so absolutely because if if artists aren't being uh inspired by artists from other cities then uh, kind of there is the risk that that someone's practice can become kind of inward looking so we we need this constant exposure of new work from other cities and other influences coming in i'm intrigued by this work also just to to see if a non-dance crowd come to see it because of the soccer kind of connotations I've already had a few people go, oh, yeah, I'm a soccer fan. I might put my toe in the water for that one. So, yeah, yeah. And, yes, as you say, Joe Lloyd, you know, fabulous. Um, We're delighted to be presenting that work, That Confusion for Three, which is a piece that she's been working on for some, has had some iterations already. Um, It's a collaboration um, with Xi'an Law and Beck Jensen. And they've kind of created this phenomenal choreographic language that is in some ways sort of uh, clumsy and deliberately um, awkward um, and they're such fabulous performers they've nuanced that to a, a really phenomenal degree and they've been improvising together for many 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 hours and it's it's kind of to me it's reached that really sweet spot where some magic is happening so we're delighted to be to be presenting that work now when I look at the list of works that are coming up at Arts House over the next six months, the ones that perhaps say to me quintessentially Art Arts House works, uh, well, let's see. We've got uh, an interspecies performance and installation <laughs> for pianos, choir, and bee swarm. Well, of course, why Bees. not? 
Yes. Well, this is a great collaboration with Astra, who are an extraordinary company, and we really enjoy working with them, particularly on the works where they're really taking some adventurous staging um, audience experience um, into in, embedding that in the in the centre of the piece. And this work is absolutely, you know, as we know, we're in a critical condition around the environment, and bees are really. Um, showing the stresses and strains of that and they're completely critical to our food sources so this work um, is is actually bringing the bees um, Martin Friedel um, is a beekeeper himself um, he's one of the composers and, and creators of the work and he uh, specialises in capturing or rehousing re homeless bees and he's going to be bringing those bees into Arts House and setting up an extraordinary sculpture with the bees there and they become part of the um, oral experience of the work with the amazing pianist Michael Kieran Harvey um, performing alongside within the beehive so, so that's yes. coming up in september yes also on in september is a drone opera an experimental multimedia performance featuring uh piloted drones their pilots and opera singers indeed again this yeah. is a fascinating <laughs> cultural mash absolutely and we're delighted to be partnering with experimenter on that one and matthew sleeth is a visual artist and he's moving you know he's ex extending his predominantly video filmic based practice into opera he's collaborating with robin fox you know the awesome um laser uh artist and, and so the 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 drones are um floating in this uh, extraordinary environment that's been created and the libretto for the for the opera is actually chillingly some of the text from uh, combat drone operators. So it's an exploration of, you know, what what we know um, goes on is that, you know, some warfare is committed um, at this distance, the safe safer distance of um, people, you know, uh, operating these aerial manned uh, machines um, without actually being in the combat zone. So I, I think, it, you know, our implicit... Uh, I suppose acceptance of that is being challenged within this work, but at the same time, our, the kind of compelling beauty, really, of those extraordinary um, technologies that that you know have got the capacity to do so much, um, so much else as well as as we know with Google Drive, or <laughs> but as uh, you know as well as it's more as well as the darker. Um, capacities of that technology. Now, if we're speaking of darker, one of the other works that I wanted to discuss, and we obviously we can't run through all of them because it's a detailed program. Yep. But Bronx Gothic is an intriguing one for me, partially because uh, it's a, an Australian premiere. It's a, a theatre dance slash visual art piece from a visiting US artist about sexual discovery in the the outer boroughs of New York City. Indeed, and it's part of a really fabulous relationship that we're building with PS One Two Two, which is a New York based. It's it's kind of like the Arts House in New York or one of the Arts Houses in New York. And we're, um, together with Melbourne Festival, really delighted to be partnering with them. So there are a couple of works um, in that season with Melbourne Festival from New York. Um, and the idea is that we'll be presenting those artists. Um, and then in um, January next year, uh, three Australian artists will be returning to be presented um, at PS122. So, um, and yes, Okwi's work 
is um, cerebral, um, visceral. She's a you know part poet, part performance maker, part um, choreographer. I think her. You know what we're interested in is is um, exactly those artists that whose work connects very much with the practice of independent artists here. And again, in that, you know, I was hearing you and Fleur talking before around um, the presenting of international works that are often, you know, we're all crammed in and it's main stage and, and it's amazing, but it's not necessarily connecting to the independent practice in the city. And I suppose, you know, for us that feels like a really critical thing that we, we're able to bring over artists um, whose work really does speak to and resonate with, with practices here. And I think Okwi's work um, as that, uh, the source of, you know, in some ways the connections to Nicola, um, you know, and the way that she, Nicola Gunn draws on her own autobiographic material to create really extraordinary pieces that are comic and um, disturbing. Um, I'm, uh, I feel like Okwi's work is part of that trajectory. We're talking about the program that's being presented by Arts House in North Melbourne over the next six months and beyond because this is the beginning of a, of a new decade for Arts House. For more information, because as I said, we can't talk about the program in its entirety, but uh, you can go to www.artshouse.com.au and find more details. You can also pick up the brochure around town, which will tell you about these projects and events uh, and will also tell you about, for example, other uh, events that Arts House presents, such as the Supper Club, which is an opportunity for reflection and conversation uh, about topics of relevant to artists and people who, in, who are engaged by work. There's also, as Ang Harrod has already mentioned, the new Artist in Residence program, which will enable people to create work in more detail. There's uh, another... Uh, opportunity for artists to experiment, rehearse and play, which is the Four Walls Space for Developing Testing and Rehearsal program. It's... You're, You've been busy, Ang Harry. We have, and, you know, we're, we're very lucky in the straightened times that we've had additional investment um, from City of Melbourne, um, and so we're really in a place where we're able to offer more support to artists um, in this in this year, and we've, we've got this, this ex, um, exhibition um, offering as well, which I'd love people, you know, if you're in North Melbourne, come come by because there's 10 years of extraordinary documentation which has been curated by Lisa Shelton um, and it's a, it's a beautiful way of actually honouring and charting, I think, some of the landscape that's, um, you know, preceded um, this, this season. Well, people should check it out. They should check out shows. They should pick up a program. They should visit Arts House in North Melbourne. Uh, and they should go to artshouse.com.au for more information. We've been chatting with the Artistic Director, Hank Harrod Wynne-Jones. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. to Triple R. Just before those announcements we heard a track from Perth Outfit Methyl Ethel from the album Oh Inhuman Spectacle and the track that we heard was called Obscura. My next guest is far from obscure. He's had his own TV show, he's been on radio, he's been on stages around the country uh, his name is Nazim Hussain uh, G'day mate, how are you? I don't know about far from obscure, I was on SBS 
Well, yeah, okay. you, you've got your own TV show, <laughs> yeah, though. Yeah, okay, so yeah, true, true. All right, yeah. I'm going to start wearing that. And you've been on Triple J. I've been on Triple J, you know, I've, uh, I've been on the news a couple of times. You've been on uh, Q&A? I've been on Q&A. That's far from obscure. Yeah. Um, didn't say anything too controversial. Didn't well, start a national debate about censorship. Why not? I know. I don't know. I'm disappointed in myself. Yeah. I should have. I should have been more provocative. Uh, it must be a challenge being on a show like that, though, oh, knowing know? just how much kind of people. Uh, if you say anything out of line, people are going to say, "Oh, see." If you say anything, if you look a certain way, if you shake your head, like if you're not wearing your tie properly, like people go nuts. That was the most stressed I've been for anything. Actually, I felt like I was walking into an exam, um, and you don't know what to cram for because. People will ask you anything and everything, and, you know, I didn't know what was going on entirely in the news that week, so, yeah, it was, it was, it was stressful. And I guess there's something like that as well. You're going to be... You're, people are going to say you are representing an entire yeah. community. You're not just there well, that's as it. yourself. You know, and you can never just... Yeah, as, as a Muslim or as a brown person, you are, yeah, you're never, you, you don't have the privilege of just being able to represent your own views. You... By extension, you represent every person that's not white, every person that's Muslim. I was admittedly on the board of the Islamic Council of Victoria at the time, so I was an official spokesperson. But even to do that, to represent your communities, is a very difficult task. You know, you can't do that in a soundbite. So it's yeah, it was, and you're up against people that are professional. Uh, you know, they're politicians. They're, they're, they're professional soundbites. Yeah, they're professional soundbites, and they've got people who refine their soundbites and rehearse them with them. So yeah, it's I'm a comedian. You know, so it's it's very it's very different. It's very different. So you <laughs> or maybe the same. Well, Oh, there's, a, there's a lot of comedy in politics, but it's usually fairly black comedy. Um, you are doing a show uh, at the Yarraville Club yes. this Saturday. Doors uh-huh. open 6.30pm, show at 8pm. Yeah. Um, you've, you're kind of remounting your comedy festival show. Well, I think it's just kind of like the last, just the last hurrah, you know. I just want to just do these jokes one more time and uh, see if I really... Like, you know, I've, I'm getting to the point where I'm almost completely sick of the show, but I think I've got one more show in me. Um, and there, there are some people that missed out, like lots of my friends. They're like, Nazim, when are you doing your comedy festival show? And I said, I did it during the comedy festival. And now they're coming along to see it once it's already over. So well, one final hurrah. Yeah. Uh, how much does that, though, then mm. mean? That, do you have to recraft elements of the show to mm. uh, drop some jokes that are no longer topical? Totally. Well, I try to keep the show, uh, I, th- I would say, 70-30. 70% is kind of like, yeah, written their jokes and routines at work, uh, irrespective of what's going on in the world on the news. But then 30% I like to, to keep, you know, keep keep current and um that's the kind of the nature of political comedy like you've got to be responding to what's happening i think there's an expectation from the audience that you're going to yeah you're going to reflect or ruminate on the news of the day and um and i like to do that i think for me it kind of it keeps me challenged and interested in the material in the show so yeah um i'll yeah i have been spending and i will be spending a bit of time uh, thinking about that going into this show in terms of having to write new material, mm. uh, what off the top of off, off the mm. top of your head, what are some of the, the the current things in in politics and around Australia that you want to discuss and engage with? Well, I mean, t- tomorrow is Eid and Saturday, lots of people are celebrating Eid, but there's also the Reclaim Australia rally, which is happening on the morning intentionally on Saturday morning. Um, you know, which is which is which is leading into the show. So I think that's something that I'd like to speak about. You know, just kind of the sorts of things that people are scared of and sort of where they where that fear is. How that fear is informed and uh you know the whole ban halal thing is ridiculous um people are calling for the burqa to be banned again you know with isis operating in the background i think it doesn't make the conversation that much easier for muslims trying to provide comments so it is i think all that kind of 
is comedy fodder in a strange way. Like, obviously, they're, they're interesting things to think and talk about, but I think if there is any tension, that's what comedy is about. It's about breaking tension or kind of selling those ideas. <laughs> not and, ISIS. But and, no. But, I'm, uh, I'm not but, pro-ISIS. <laughs> the, that's the thing, I guess, about, for me, the thing about good comedy is the way that it kicks up. It's kind of like saying, mm. right, well, let's talk at privilege and uh, yeah. kick into it and lay into it and say, what are the things you're not talking about rather than kicking down, well, which is lazy comedy. Totally. And I think, you know, you, the audiences can tell and feel like, you know, when, it, when, the, when the target of the joke isn't right, like it's uncomfortable for everybody. And that's why, that's why you know, that's why sexist jokes and homophobic jokes and racist jokes, like they just don't sit well with the audience. Like you might get a few laughs from people going, I can't believe he went there. That was shocking. Wow, how provocative. But it's not enjoyable. You don't feel good as an audience celebrating that sort of comedy so I think in Australia for a comedian there are lots of lots of targets that are worthy <clears throat> you know um, there are lots of men who are stuffing up there are lots of politicians doing the wrong thing we are doing lots of awful things as a society to people that are vulnerable um, and those sorts of things and attitudes that prevail that, that's all those are all legitimate targets and so for me um, yeah there's 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 a lot to talk about, comedy-wise. Obviously, yeah. this doesn't sound very funny in this conversation, but um, no, <laughs> well, there, are, there are lots of targets. It, it, it's, it's the problem. If you start talking about comedy, you then have to start analysing it. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Kinda> like <laughs> if you explain a joke, it's not funny. Yeah, but tell us about your joke writing process because yeah. that's one of the things that I think for people who don't see a lot of comedy and don't mm. perform comedy there's sometimes oh somebody just gets up you on stage up. and tells stories <laughs> so talk to us about structuring a show and writing material yeah. and going well no nah, that joke would actually work better following that one yeah 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 well I mean definitely as an audience member you, you want to feel like you're watching someone that's just getting on the stage and just, just having a riff you know and that's I think that's the, the gift of a good comedian being able to just look like they're just coming up with it off the cuff but but, but there's a lot of writing. You know, Jerry Seinfeld said he took eight hours to write three minutes of good stand-up. So it's a writing-intensive... It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a craft of writing. But for me, I, like, I feel like I write best when I'm angry or annoyed at something. I feel like naturally in conversation, when I'm, when I'm ranting, that's when people find what I'm saying most interesting or funniest. And I think I'm naturally sarcastic and... You know, when I'm upset or pissed off with my family or friends or whatever, like that's kind of when people tend to laugh at me the most, and they don't take me seriously. So for my, for me, for, for it's it's easiest for me to write when I'm when I'm annoyed. So which is why I guess political comedy is, is my natural call. But yeah, you you write stuff. Um, I tend to to get upset about a whole bunch of things or work out what's annoying me. Um, and then you sort of, yeah, I just sort of try to theme my show, like kind of have themes throughout my show. So you talk about one particular topic, really go at it from as many different angles, as, or if it's funny, and then sort of move on to other topics and try and link them together throughout the show. Um, so that there is some sort of thread, albeit a very loose one. I, I'm, I have this mental image of you trying to identify what's making you the angrier so you can write about it. And I don't know whether that's just polling your friends and saying, what was I ranting about the most this week? Or whether you just, I don't know, pin things up on a board and randomly throw darts and choose the one that sticks. You know what? Sometimes when I'm really like I see something that frustrates me or I read something that pisses me off, I'll just write it in my phone on notes, and then I'll just write a word or two words, and and, and I can tell when I'm really angry because I'll read through the notes and there are typos all over the place. <laughs> like I'm just like I wrote that really quickly in a fit of rage, um, and then when it comes to writing, I'll be like, why was I even angry? But that that doesn't annoy me now. Like why was I upset? About so so you know a lot of the time, you know the ideas just aren't that 
<laughs> there's just nothing in them. But yeah, I, I just write everything down. So one of the things I wanted to ask is how has your comedy evolved mm. over the years that you've been performing from from the the very earliest days? You, of, we were saying you, yeah. you probably saw my first show with Fear of a Brown Planet. Yeah, when there were three of you in three that. Of us. <laughs> then it became a duo, and yes. now you've you've moved into TV and other other fields. Yeah. So how has TV, for example, influenced mm. and shaped your stage presence and your stage performance? Well, I mean, I started off doing stand up kind of as an extension of community work. So my comedy at the time wasn't intentionally. Like it, I didn't film. I didn't think I was a stand-up. I was just sort of trying to engage with young Muslims and brown people with community work and youth work. And when you're trying to engage with kids who, who are grappling with their own identity, the way you got to do that is is by making them laugh. And then they, you know, you can kind of allow them to. You, you encourage them to sort of express themselves with stories in their own, you know. And, and so it, it, my comedy used to be naturally very self-deprecating. It would, it would be a lot about growing up and your family and the silly things that people don't get about, don't get about you when you talk about your life. Just someone that's not Muslim or not brown. But, um, so yeah, I guess I, that was sort of my style of comedy uh, starting out, which was not a long time ago, actually. But now I feel like, um, you know, I can talk about a lot of other things just just in life, you know, observational stuff, stuff, as, as I said, that annoys me, whether it's political or not. Um, and I think it doesn't necessarily need to be so self-deprecating. I feel like there were, I felt an expectation that if I was going to make jokes about broader society that I need to also make jokes about myself. And I think audiences sometimes used to expect that, that if you're an ethnic comedian, well, you need to kind of earn your earn your place here by first ridiculing your own experience as, a, as an ethnic minority and then you can start making jokes about white people, only a few though. Whereas now I just don't feel that... that need to do that. I can just say what I want to say. If you want to see Nazim saying what he wants to say, then this Saturday, <laughs> the 18th of July... Perfect segue. Uh, ...at Yarraville Laughs. So uh, <laughs> it's the Yarraville Club, 135 Stephen Street, Yarraville. Uh, YarravilleLaughs.com is the website. Um, performing his sold-out show from this year's Melbourne International I Comedy mean, it's Festival. not sold out this Saturday. No, but it did but sell out. But it did out. sell out. Oh, totally, totally sold out. It was a five-seater venue. <laughs> so uh, the show is called Legally Brown, same name as his TV show. Kind of working on uh, on how it's just a marketing are. strategy. It's all very clever. <laughs> so yarravillelast.com, as I said, if you want to check him out, uh, performing this Saturday the 18th at the Yarraville Club in Yarraville of all places. Uh, doors open at 6:30. The show is at 8 p.m. So you could go to Parliament House earlier in the day and counter protest. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the I'm actually going to be performing at the protest. Oh, I'll see you there. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, I'll be at the. Oh. I'll be Oh, awesome. I'll be protesting the the far right. So, hey, yeah. I'll be protesting with the Reclaim Australia dudes. <laughs> I'll be there with my Australia flag, just trying to disguise myself as a white nationalist. I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> and uh, I hope people enjoy the show this Saturday. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. See you, Richard. It's almost time for me to go. So it's been a rather action-packed morning, but a good one nonetheless. Uh, speaking of action-packed, Chris Gill will be with you after midday, and I do believe he has a, uh, a live performance happening today. So um, I'm I, actually, Chris, I can see you running excitedly towards the studio. So how about you jump on a mic and, uh, and who have you got on? 37 is the band. And they're a, uh, a live uh, instrumental hip-hop band. So and they're actually going to be uh, doing a live soundtrack to a movie on Saturday, um, a Pitcher Pong's uh, Uncle Boom Me, which is a Thai uh, 
sort of ghost story, and it's at that new speakeasy cinema in Victoria Street, Fitzroy, the home, the, the old home. The old home of Triple R. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, people can check that out from midday. Thanks, mate. Well, no worries at all. We'll uh, catch you soon. Have a good show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to wrap up, going to finish with a track by Mavis Staples from Your Good Fortune. We're going to hear the title track in just a moment. Many thanks to uh, all of my guests this morning for the pleasure of your company. It's been an action-packed show. Nine interviews over three hours. I will probably go and collapse in a small quivering heap shortly afterwards. But I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Just before I go, I did want to let you know that Triple R are presenting Bat Piss live to air during Respect the Rock. Uh, Thursday, today, the 16th of July at 3.30pm sharp in the Triple R Performance Space. Doors open at 3pm. So if you would like to catch local punk sludge trio Bat Piss performing tracks from their latest album Biomass live during Respect the Rock today at 3.30pm, give us a call 93881027. I've got a couple of double passes to give away. This project has been assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council for the Arts, its arts funding and advisory body. So thanks to them. Uh, And yeah, give us a call 93881027 if you would like to see Bat Piss live today in the Triple R performance space. As I said, I'm out of here, leaving you with Mavis Staples, your good fortune. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci.